0: Howdy folks, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Zach Larson.
1: And I'm Kirsten Michael. We both work for the Fremont County Museum System, located in the heart of West Central Wyoming, a land where Mother Nature rules and man has to get crafty if he wants to survive.
0: As always, this episode is brought to you by Mick Pryor, a financial advisor with Edward Jones. Whether you're planning for retirement, saving for college, for children, for grandchildren, or just trying to protect the financial future of the ones you care for the most, Uh, Work with Mick to develop specific strategies to help you achieve your goals. He can also help monitor your progress to make sure you stay on track and determine if any adjustments need to be made.
1: So last month's podcast episode, we dove into our nation's archives and scoured census records from before 1940 to see who did what, where, and how in the Wind River Valley. Specifically, though, March was Women's History Month, and Wyoming is the equality state. So last month's episode highlighted how women impacted their worlds in Fremont County.
0: This month, we're sharing the tales of agriculture in Fremont County and the struggles that come with trying to tame Wyoming's wild landscape. We're going to talk about everything from apples to oranges, cows to sheep, birds to bees.
1: And don't go writing off this episode as boring or just for the farmers amongst you. The growing business in northwestern Wyoming is nothing to wrinkle your nose at.
0: Sometimes it's just something to plug your nose at, but only if going by feedlots on a hot summer day.
1: Or a hot spring day, because I got out of my car today in Riverton, and I'm like, mm, it smells like farms. Yeah. Because everything is thawing.
0: Kind of like that smell.
1: Yeah. It's not a bad smell, but it's very potent it's, to those who aren't used to it.
0: It's an acquired taste.
1: Mm-hmm. So, the struggle to tame Wyoming's wild landscape for agricultural uses is a tale with many facets. It involved crafty engineering, a lot of cursing, a lot of praying, and loads of pure human stubbornness. And in some cases, the struggle paid off. The Du Bois Museum has a newspaper article from September 24th, 1926, that tells the story of Emil Blaha, or Blaha. We haven't actually decided how to pronounce his name um, but he was a homesteader who set up shop in the Dunor Valley in 1911, which is just west, about 12 miles west of Bois's main town section. And the Blaha Ranch, called the Highland Meadow Ranch, sat at about 8,500 feet in elevation. It was covered in snow for around eight months out of the year, but that did not stop the Blaha family from successfully growing almost 5,000 heads of lettuce during the summer season of 1926. Let me repeat that. Five thousand heads of lettuce at eight thousand five hundred feet.
0: It's a lot of taco salad. It's
1: a lot of taco salad. That's a lot of, a lot of salads. Um, the Wyoming grocery company out of Casper had apparently put an order into Blaha for eight hundred sixty-four heads of his award-winning lettuce.
0: Award-winning lettuce?
1: Yes, it is award-winning lettuce that was grown in the Dunor Valley in 1926. So over 15 years of living up at the Dunor, Emil and his wife experimented with various types of lettuce suitable to the 9,000-foot altitude. Um, And according to this newspaper article, properly handled, the Bleyha lettuce will keep for a month or better before deteriorating. In 1926, Bleja apparently won every prize related to lettuce at the country fair, which I don't actually know how many prizes related to lettuce are at the country fair, but based on the newspaper article, it was more than two.
0: Maybe all three of the prizes.
1: All three of the prizes.
0: Yeah, over so over 15 years, we already did that. I never really thought of lettuce as being a hardy enough plant to grow well in the mountains.
1: I rarely think of vegetables as being mountain-grown yeah. crops, although as lettuce a vegetable, it's a leaf.
0: Salads wow. are made out of vegetables, and lettuce is in salads, so it's a vegetable.
1: Therefore, it is a vegetable, sure. We're not scientists or dietitians on the show. We're sometimes comedians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so apparently... Uh, Lettuce thrived in the Dunar Valley, and the Blahas, or how that family, figured it out. It's very odd to think how ingrained it is in humans to make something work, though. Think about it. Most logical creatures will look at our arid sagebrush deserts or alpine forests and go, I'm not adapted to this nonsense. I'm leaving. I won't nearly kill myself just so I don't die here. Humans, though? Nah. We're going to look at this and be like, I can make this work. I will... Beat the mountains into submission if they have to in order to make a living.
0: Yeah, we uh, took a little family drive to Thermopolis the other day just to get out and walk around. And the kids loved that they got to drive under the tunnels that were dynamited into, you know, we want the road to go here by gummets. So kaboom!
1: By golly, we're going to make it That's so. That's right. So is it like a tradition for people to honk in the tunnels of Thermopolis? You got to
0: honk in the tunnels.
1: Okay, because I'll be driving and there'll be somebody behind me and they'll be honking and I'll be like, what is going on? Yeah,
0: yeah that's the code of the West.
1: Oh, I'm not from the West. I'm from the Midwest. But
0: That would uh, be the code of the Midwest.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Illinois. Um, so yeah, we use dynamites to blast mountains, mm-hmm. but that just goes to show how absolutely bat crap crazy humans can be that is my unofficial opinion, bad, crap, crazy. Instead of saying, let's take the path of least resistance that already exists. We go, I'm going to make a path of least resistance right here because I want to.
0: Yeah. Right there. You know, that same ingenuity that says, how about we put, you know, 200 people into a metal tube and send that tube up into the air to go across the country in five hours. It's just kind of, we're stubborn and that stubbornness is kind of miraculous sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so humans, dams, rivers, airplanes, blast mountains, we domesticate wolves.
1: And they spend 60 years perfecting the art of gardening just because, in the words of one Bois president, the store is too far away and growing stuff yourself is cheaper, but not easier.
0: Huh. Yeah, that's, uh, who said that?
1: Um, so a a man I have in. Immense, immense respect for. And he's a Du Bois legend by the name of Jack H. Anderson. And for the last year and a half, the Du Bois Museum has been working with Jack's descendants to create the Jack H. Anderson Memorial Collection in our museum. And in doing so, I've gotten an in depth look at what a cool and impressive character Jack was an outfitter, blacksmith, musician, master gardener, jack of all trades.
0: Yeah, we could probably do a whole podcast series on Jack Anderson.
1: We really could. Don't tempt me because I am very invested in his family story.
0: <laughs> Is the Jack Anderson show taken?
1: <laughs> he almost got his own TV show, or maybe it was a movie. I don't know. Back in the day, he was offered to like come to California and like do a show. Yeah. And that was
0: before uh, Netflix was handing out TV shows like free candy at the Fourth of July parade.
1: Oh my gosh, Jack Anderson's life could be a Netflix yeah. series.
0: Um. So anyway, why? What was? so special about Jack Anderson and how does this topic fit into the agricultural history of this area?
1: So, growing up on a fruit and vegetable farm in Illinois, Jack served in the military during World War I. Um, There he met a gentleman from Lander, Wyoming, who managed to convince Jack to come out to Wyoming for a visit. And by 1920, Jack established his ranch along the Wind River in Dubois and stayed there until his death 60 years later. And there, on Home on the Wind, is what he called his ranch, he grew a garden that earned him local as well as international acclaim. Hmm.
0: So... You somehow relate to somebody who grew up in rural Illinois and then later came to Fremont County.
2: Yes, I wonder why. Oh, very
0: odd. Um, so, what was what made, what made his garden so special?
1: Well, part of its fame came from the fact that it was a large outdoor garden located at 6666 feet it's a lot of sixes Mm -hmm. um, in elevation and the growing season for that elevation is one of the short shortest on the continent with frost free periods of growing beginning in early june and lasting about until late august
0: so with an average of just 77 days for growing how did jack make such a successful garden
1: a lot of trial and error, let me tell you. Um, But like many of the people who grow vegetables and fruits in the Upper Wind River Valley, you have to get creative. And Jack, by golly, was one of the most creative. Uh, Many people today build greenhouses to grow vegetables and other plants throughout the year, but even a greenhouse has to start with a good location. And Jack didn't rely on a greenhouse, so he had to find a good outdoor location that met a whole bunch of different criteria. Unfortunately, he only found his location through trial and error after planting a plot of plants, say that five times fast, (laughs) um, and losing most of it to frost. Uh, But once he found a location and picked it out and tilled it and set it up, um, it still took a lot of trial and error to find and implement successful growing methods. But Jack had a slew of short season strategies that he used for decades.
0: Let's hear about some of these secret short season strategies.
1: So let me tell you, it is just insane to read the records, and we have a map of his garden in our collection um, that just goes to show how he organized plants and how he did all this stuff. So, but he really did almost anything. Um, more traditional techniques included starting sprouts indoors or interplanting seeds that can help each other grow. According to an article from the November 1987 National Gardening Magazine that featured Jack in his garden, Jack seeds the parsnips very thinly, then drops beet seeds in the same row. This sparse spacing allows the parsnip's roots to grow smooth and long and also permits room for their companion crops of beets. When planting peas, Jack drops cabbage seeds every 15 inches or so in the same row as the peas. The peas initially shade out the small cabbage sprouts, but after the vines are harvested and removed, Jack finds, or found in this case, the cabbages really take off.
0: So he's got some symbiotic relationships there in his planting Mhm. If he used more traditional gardening methods, did he methods did he use any untraditional ones?
1: Yes, and I'm so glad you asked because just yes. Jack's more untraditional approaches to combating short growing seasons included breeding custom crops and even wrapping fruit trees with wool overcoats.
0: I can I can picture Mrs. Anderson sitting by a cozy fire in a rocking chair knitting a wool sweater for an like an elm tree or a poplar tree or something.
1: Yeah, and he had he had started his orchard back in the early 20s, mid-20s, and he had a wife, and he had several children. Um, so I have no idea how involved they were with um, planting, but as most farm kids know, that if your parents are planting anything, you're helping. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he I'm sure he took all of their old overcoats um, and said, we're going to recycle mm-hmm. these. Yeah. He was ahead of his time. Yeah. We're going to recycle these and wrap trees in coats.
0: Uh, so what did he grow
1: so it's a little of everything, a lot of some. Um, his garden was impressive. Um, his really real love was his orchard. So he had snow apples. He had different types of plums that he found, grew better. He grew cherries on in his orchard. Um, so he grew most of his own seeds for decades and rarely bought seeds. Actually his winter squash, a hearty variety that tasted, and I quote, better than a sweet potato was a hybrid Jack made by crossing a Hubbard squash with a buttercup squash. He also crossbred snow apples to make them better suited for the rugged environment of the upper wind river valley. His garden and orchard were a testament to his commitment to the love he had for Wind River Valley. And his garden remained, um, him and his garden remained a legacy for the people of the valley. He is quoted saying, "'Gardeners in the Wind River Valley must know the weather, although you can't predict it. The most useful commodity for gardeners is lots of luck.'" Um, Even though it's been over 30 years since Jack last tended tended his garden, remnants of this garden, the random vegetable plant here or there, the fruit trees, still exist today on the old ranch property. And you can actually see them from the road when you drive past the old ranch property.
0: Hmm. So he, he ended the National Garden Magazine article interview with the following last bit of advice. Keep the weeds out. They're here to make you earn your produce.
1: And if that's not a Fremont County kind of mindset, I don't know what it's because it's not just up in Dubois that people had to get crafty and really battle Mother Nature for success. But here in Riverton, Lander had a little bit better because they were kind of the fertile valley Mm -hmm. of the, the county anyway. And we've talked about, landers agricultural
0: yeah we had randy on from the pioneer museum last year to talk about landers agricultural history and i will link that episode in the, in the show notes
1: mm-hmm. but this episode we're talking about dubois and riverton and i'm gonna hand it off to zach because i know nothing about riverton's industry of agriculture
0: so riverton um there's a classic john wayne movie mcclintock you ever seen that one yes i have good Everybody should see that one. If you haven't seen it, stop the episode. Go watch it. Go to Blockbuster, rent the VHS of it. Go find a VCR and. Or if you're from it. the
1: 21st century, I'm sure it's somewhere on Amazon. It's probably Prime or streaming
0: Netflix. somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's this great scene when all these homesteaders show up in the Mesa Verde, where uh, John Wayne is portraying a. Uh, a cattle tycoon by the name of George Washington McClintock. Classic John Wayne name. I mean, everything's great. And, uh, one of the new homesteaders gets off and he says, the government give us this land. And I'm paraphrasing everything here, but he says, the government never gave anybody anything. He says something like, if you want to keep this land, you're going to earn it. God intended this country for the Buffalo works pretty well for the cow, but it hates the plow, something (laughs) like that. So, Riverton's a long way from, I don't even know if the Mesa Verde is a real place or if it's a fictional thing invented for uh, It's
1: a movie shtick.
0: A movie shtick. I, I I imagine it's like in southern Colorado or something like that, you know, on the Colorado Plateau. Maybe I'm just making that up. Anyway. Um. That is kind of the way that Riverton was before the, the, the early mid-1900s. Um, Riverton was like a, well, a sagebrush desert. Yeah, there's not much not much of anything going on. Uh, it was, of course, surrounded by the Wind River Indian Reservation. Um, and we've got a lot of, we, we'll do a whole episode about this at some point in the future, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. in a nutshell, um, a good chunk of that land, basically what was, uh, anything north of the Wind River was, was basically uh, sold off and, and open for white homesteading. Eventually, most of that land was returned. The idea was, this was in 1906. That's when Riverton as a city was founded, and the idea was that a lot of people had come, and they had this big, grandiose idea to to build a bunch of irrigation canals and and bring water into this sagebrush desert to make it suitable farmland. And, you know, it's it's really a good location for agriculture, except that there's no water.
1: Small detail.
0: Yeah. You know, water is kind of one of those things that you need if you want to grow anything at all. Um. So... That was, you know, in 1906, a lot of people moved in. Riverton began to grow, uh, but its growth was slow, and and the irrigation projects were kind of slow to come online. A lot of the irrigation companies had basically fell to infighting, and then in the 1920s, the uh, Bureau of Reclamation basically took over the whole project and uh, created the Midvale Irrigation District, and that includes, like, a lot of the stuff that we, you know, that we know about. We're actually doing a trek, we'll talk about that in a later episode. But this summer, the Riverton Museum is hosting a trek week. We're going to go to the the Bull Lake Dam, the Diversion Dam, Pilot Butte Reservoir. There's a power station there. But basically, um, starting in the 1920s, a lot of these irrigation projects began to be completed and irrigation and farming and, as a result, homesteading really took off in Riverton. Um, so one of, the, one of the, I guess, people in Riverton that became a staple that we could talk about is a guy named Pop Logan, and did we talk about him on an earlier episode? Does that name sound familiar?
1: It does sound familiar, but you're going to have to remind me of what he does slash who he is.
0: One of the one of the really interesting stories from early Riverton's history is that in 1912, a dispatcher on the railroad came to Riverton, uh, basically took some time off, and was going to help his brother-in-law, who was nearly blind, um, start a new homestead. This was kind of you know in the early years of Riverton, the irrigation projects hadn't been completed yet. Um, anyway, Charlie Logan showed up. He fell in love with the community and, uh, they built a farm that produced grain hay and cattle. Um, but during the depression, and this is what one of the most really interesting things about Riverton's history is all of these irrigation projects came online just in time for the rest of the country to be facing the dust bowl, to be facing, you know, the great depression. So as often happens for whatever reason in Fremont County, we didn't suffer economically nearly as severely as the rest of the country. So, it might have um, been
1: because we were always a little bit behind the rest of the country.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we had less far to fall. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, so they they moved away from their traditional prod- products and started producing vegetables, greenhouse plants, and by the late 30s, uh, Charlie Logan had developed and began producing and harvesting uh, a black kerneled popping corn that he called this Black Beauty, and it was it was really popular. It popped basically pure white um, he sold it all over the uh, the mountain west and basically packaged it in tin containers and shipped it out so the uh, the second world War kind of dealt a little blow to his uh, his business because you know tin shortages every, every every scrap of metal that anybody could find basically went to the war effort so um, he was I guess, at heart, one of the things that I think you can really glean from his story is that he was always an entrepreneur. And so he found a chassis of an old star automobile. He built a little wagon on top of it. And instead of selling his his popping kernels just overseas, he got a big kettle and, you know, basically made himself a popcorn-selling wagon. And he took it to rodeos, and it was an instant hit. And then for the next several decades, uh, he became basically like a fixture of Riverton. Everybody knows who Pop Logan was, any of the old-timers you talk to him. Um, pop Logan. He he loved interacting with all of his faithful customers. He would set up near the movies so that people could take popcorn to the movies. Um, his health began to fail as he grew older.
1: As it does, usually. Yeah,
0: yeah. old age and, and health. So uh, he semi-retired in the 1950s, but continued to pop... Often more than three hundred bags of popcorn for Halloween to give away. Dang. Yeah. Um,
1: so, and he grew the corn locally.
0: Yeah, yeah. This was all grown in Riverton, and basically his his uh, his farm is is in downtown Riverton now. I I can't remember the. Oh yeah, uh, between Pershing and Sunset, and between Main and Broadway. So that's the that's the site of his homestead, and that that subdivision is is I think called the Logan. Subdivision and all the the titles and stuff like that. Um, so after he passed away, his wagon went through several organizations. It was restored in the '80s by the Riverton FFA, and and eventually the Riverton Museum ended up with it. And uh, has restored it. Yeah, shameless plug. We'll we'll drag that thing out every once in a while this summer and and have some tasty popcorn. So um, really, Riverton's story with agriculture is tied, you know very much in with this irrigation project The without without that. I mean, it, there's a lot of, of hay, there's a lot of cattle, there's a lot of sugar beets. All of those industries um, are, are really important parts of Riverton's history that wouldn't have existed without the uh, agricultural, pro- the irrigation projects. Mm-hmm.
1: And so. that is really, I mean, that's part of the story of all of Wyoming is the fact that humans have really worked to the Native Americans, not so much. Um, they worked with nature mm-hmm. a lot more than the eastern settlers coming out did. Um, and it's really interesting to see that di- the difference between them. And we'll talk about that kind of difference in a later um, episode, which we keep saying a lot of. But we uh, have a lot of big plans for this podcast. Yeah, we do. Um, but it, it's... Part of the, the story of, you know, when people moved from the East Coast into the Midwest, they found that the dirt was different, so they had to develop different plows and other techniques and technology. Yay, John Deere. Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, I'm Again, I'm from Illinois. I have... And barbed wire, that's
0: yeah. from Illinois, too. Also, Caterpillar.
1: Yes. Oh, I guess, yeah. I should shout out to Caterpillar, too. I mean,
0: that they're more well-known for their non-agricultural industri- industrial machinery, but...
1: But John Deere and, like, the McKinley Reaper and stuff like that, they started with plows, hand or horse-drawn plows kind of thing. And then as people from the Midwest moved west, they found Wyoming and Colorado, and they're like, we're going to make this work. Yeah. Which, and that's the stories that we talked about today, is that people coming into Wyoming, making a home here, um, using sheer human stubbornness to create a bountiful garden in the middle of a desert. hmm but so that kind of wraps up this this uh, month's podcast though with the agricultural history. We could go on. There's yeah. so much information on the agricultural history of Fremont County, let alone the entire state.
0: Well, that certainly is a history that continues to this day. I mean, agriculture will always I think be a significant part of mm-hmm. Wyoming's economy and Wyoming's history.
1: Yeah. And just the different stuff that's grown, the different animals that are raised here. Yeah, we could do we could probably do a year long podcast. It's fun to do one of these days? Yeah. When we have time. Yeah. Eh, we'll get there someday. But thank you so much all you listeners for joining us for this episode of Rediscover the Winds, a Wyoming history podcast.
0: Um so if you liked what you heard today, join us next month. We are actually we've got a lot of upcoming treks throughout the summer to a lot of really interesting historical places, so we're going to be we we'll, we'll talk really briefly about some of those in the next few minutes, but we're going to talk about each of those places in greater detail in next month's episode and talk about why it's worth uh, going out to visit those places.
1: Mm-hmm. So if you've ever wanted to go on a trek with us or can't because you live hundreds of miles away or if you can't physically, tune in, tune in next month when we kind of bring you through all these different experiences, all these treks and historical locations that we're going to hike through. Yeah. and tell you about some of the more ridiculous things the museum have done um, or we as hikers have done. And then some of the really interesting stuff that we want to tell you guys about. So if you liked what you heard today, like us on Facebook at rediscover the winds and make sure to subscribe to our channel on stitcher Podbean, Spotify, or really any other podcast platform you might be using. We're probably yeah. there.
0: Um, so if you've already followed us on any of those platforms or all of them, Uh, we're really thankful for your support. It means the world to us. We hope that you guys also get a chance to stop by our museums where there's always things, you know, changing and rotating and, you know, it's always worth visiting frequently. Um, and we'd also love for you to come to our upcoming events. Hey listeners, it's Zach on editing day. And just as a heads up due to the ongoing coronavirus outbreak, Uh, The museum system sites are going to continue to be closed through at least April, so all of the events that you're going to hear about upcoming, many of them will have either be canceled or most of them will be rescheduled to a later date. Uh, We recorded this episode actually in early March, so before a lot of these restrictions went into effect. Um, If you have questions on any of these specific events, check out our social media pages, or feel free to call the museums. We are still here uh, working and continuing to update exhibits and change things so that when we open again, we'll have a lot of great new stuff for everybody to see. Um, And with that, Back to your regularly scheduled, if a little outdated, podcast episode. Thanks.
1: Yeah, so the snow might not be stopping, but neither are we. We have some great events coming up that you don't want to miss, including Wyoming Community Bank sponsors all Discovery Speaker Series, and they are free and open to the public. And the first one is at Riverton.
0: So basically in the museum world, we often get asked, you know, by just acquaintances and friends that know we work in this industry, in this space, Mm -hmm. that say, Hey, I've got these, you know, these old documents or this old book, this family Bible, whatever it is that used to be my great, great, great grandpa's or something like that. How do I take care of it? And many times these documents are just stored in like a box somewhere in the attic or in the basement, you know, next to that like leaky water pipe or something like that. Um, We are going to help you on April 16th between 630 and 8 or 930, just however long it takes. Um, To preserve those family documents, we'll show you some basic conservation skills. We'll show you how to just take care of those things, clean them, and store them, and maintain them in such a way that uh, future generations can can benefit from those those documents. Um, So bring your documents. It'll be kind of a workshop-type thing. Uh, But please let us know if you plan on attending, because uh, we will have kind of limited seating and supplies
1: Thoughts are limited. So the Lander Museum on April 23rd at 7 o'clock in the evening is hosting another Discovery Speaker Series titled Esther Hobart Morris, Wyoming and Women's Suffrage. Author and historian Catherine Swim Cummings will present a talk on her new book, Esther Hobart Morris, Wyoming and Women's Suffrage. Uh, Topics to be discussed include the life and times of the nation's first female judge, her role at South Pass City, and her impact on women's suffrage. And for those of you who have listened to us for more than five minutes, um, we'll remember that we did a mini-series last March, March 2019, and we talked about Esther Hobart Morris in, I want to say, the first episode of March's mini-series. So if you want some background information, go check out our past episode or make sure that you find yourself at the Lander Museum on April 23rd.
0: Preferably both. Preferably both. We'll, We'll link that episode, too.
1: Yeah. So, and then Bailey and Tire, Bailey Tire and Auto Service and Pit Stop Travel Center sponsors the following children exploration programs. So
0: I'll let you do the first one because oh, I'm gonna do the second one.
1: Oh, you don't want to talk more? I guess since the DuBois yeah. Museum, we are kickstarting our kids programs in June, and it's not quite there yet. So uh, the Pioneer Museum on April 18th is having their big very well known and very popular sheep shearing day event from one to three o'clock on the museum property um, back by popular demand the sheep shearing day uh, which goes hand in hand with a lot of what we just talked about in the agricultural history of Fremont County so this special event at the Pioneer Museum will highlight the important role agriculture and sheep played in Lander's history so join museum staff and visitors for a fun family event exploring the history of the sheep industry in Fremont County Um, there'll be demonstrations the sheep Shearing demonstrations, petting zoo, kids' crafts and events, food, fiber crafts, and product demonstrations. I wish I could go, but I will be working. <laughs> um,
0: on May 9th, the Riverton Museum is doing another children's exploration series, which is one that I'm really looking forward to. Um, something that I, I've just always liked doing. Uh, have you ever done anything in a dark room?
1: That sounds like a questionable question to ask me. <laughs>
0: I mean darkroom. Like (laughs) Like a computer,
1: like not a computer, a photo, yeah, Yeah. sorry, continue. No, I've actually never worked with uh, photography equipment in a darkroom.
0: It's it's always something that was like magical for me, and so then when I finally got to like experience seeing a picture develop in a darkroom, it was so cool. So what we're doing is we are building cameras out of oatmeal boxes, Hmm. loading them with photo paper, taking them outside, shooting pictures, taking them back inside and developing those pictures and seeing them like come to life under that, Dim red light—it's the coolest thing in the world. And then, um, after we develop the photographs, we're actually going to hang them up in the museum gallery for a few weeks so that uh, oh, that's cute. people can come by and see the pictures that their kids and grandkids and friends took. Um, this is a—it's just a really, really cool event. Uh, probably best suited to fifth grade or older, just because we will be around um, some chemicals that are, you know, not terribly dangerous at all, but.
1: Supervision is required. Yeah. Adult supervision is required. So
0: uh, we'll start that at 2 p.m. and it should run until about 4 and that will cost $10 to cover the materials.
1: So Also, I totally forgot, we do have another um, Discovery Speaker Series happening in early May. And it is May 7th at the Dubois Museum at 7 o'clock. And it is John Mayanzinski is coming and he's going to be talking about, drumroll please, Sasquatch. Oh, we have a button for
0: that. No, I don't turn
1: off. <laughs> that works. I'm sure that does work. <laughs> so John Wiensinski is a very well known ethnobotanist and a wildlife uh, cons—I don't know—scientist studier. He's a jack of all trades. Also, we could probably do a podcast episode about his life. Um, but one of his fields of research happens to be Sasquatch, and it, and or. Bigfoot, you could call him, and its presence in the Wind River Mountains. And before you just tisk your tongue and say we've gone crazy, um, come attend this event. May 7th, 7 o'clock at the Dubois Museum, held in the Denison Lodge on Dubois Museum property. Um, And come learn about Bigfoot's presence in the Wind River Mountain from a man who has spent the last 50 years studying
0: Bigfoot. And to be clear, this is not the Bigfoot that you saw in the mid-90s smashing cars at the Casper Event Center.
1: No, this is the mysterious North American ape.
0: Um, That should be an amazing, really cool event. I'm, I'm really excited, looking forward to that one. So, anyway... Um, That is all of our upcoming events, at least for the next little while. So thank you for listening to this Wyoming History Podcast. I'm your host, Zach, from the Riverton Museum.
1: And I'm Kirsten from the Dubois Museum and Wind River Historical Center.
0: And we look forward to continuing this adventure to rediscover the winds with you next time.
2: It's my day. The camp's out in the mountains.
0: Tell us about the music for this episode.
1: Yes. So the music, the intro and outro music you are listening to in this episode comes from the Jack H. Anderson Memorial Collection at the Dubois Museum and is actually original music played and sang by Jack H. Anderson himself.